only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Hey, good evening to you. Another installment of Beyond the Bricks. Jake Query along with Mike Thompson. Sam Rumsa is our producer of this program. Uh, Sam Fritz, I hope I said his last name correctly. Filling in, did I get that right, Sam? Fritz, yes. Sam Fritz, the pride of Zionsville and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Helping out tonight as... We talk once again the personalities, the names, the faces, the stories, the legends, the rumors, all of it that encompasses the 106th running and the previous 105 runnings of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Mike, I've been excited for this program for a while because we talk so much, and kudos to you for this idea. We kind of tag team coming up with game plans for this program and profiling different personalities. And I think one of the things that I have really enjoyed, in particular this month, Sure, it's always fun to talk about Uncle Bobby and A.J. Foyt and Mario Andretti. But I think you get equally the kick that I do out of every once in a while tipping the cap towards or keeping alive the memories, the contributions, the legacies of those a little more behind the scenes, whether it be a driver or those that just helped build up the facility and the event. And that's what we're going to do tonight, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite parts of this whole thing that we do is the fact that we have the opportunity to yeah i mean we talk about mario and uncle bobby like you said and big al and you know we share all those stories but we have the opportunity to really maybe shed some light on some folks that people may not really know and you know really kind of perpetuate the memory of some of these folks that you know the speedway in some cases tonight we're going to talk about some folks that the you know the speedway really needed some of these folks and I think it's really important what we're doing, and I'm, I'm really excited that you're as excited as I am about tonight's show. So let's begin with this. Before we get to talking about some of the names and hearing from some of the people from yesteryear that were huge behind-the-scenes folks, on this, that's kind of our theme for tonight, is behind-the-scenes folks that propped up the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and helped make it what it is today. Uh, those people still exist, obviously, in the fact that there are those on the staff that do a phenomenal job that maybe people don't realize and know their name, know what it is that they they do. Uh, I will begin with two of them, Mike, and I hope I don't steal your thunder here. But if I were to name, if someone were to come up to me and say, hey, Jake, tell me some people at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway that don't get their due enough. Certainly, we know, understandably and rightly, of the job that Doug Bowles does as the president of the Speedway and promoting the Speedway and working hard to do that. Uh, I will give two. First off, one of those that works within the public relations department at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway who has a great passion for it and I don't think ever gets any rest and never gets probably the proper pat on the back. The senior manager of media relations is Susie Elliott. And Susie not only helps coordinate and deal with the 
needs of everything from people at the last second needing parking spots to figuring out credentials to having the unenviable task at times of limiting the credentials that go out or telling people that they can't get as many credentials as they thought, which unfortunately is a necessity. Um, but also somebody that in the middle of November, if you call and go, hey, I, listen, I've got somebody out here that's in from out of town and they want to see the Speedway. And I know she's always accommodating, always fabulous. Susie Elliott, um, if you were to cut her, bleeds checkers. And so she would be one. The other would be Paul Kelly, who is the director of editorial content for Penske Entertainment. And Paul lives in New York, but like you and I, Mike, has a great passion and knowledge of the Speedway. And... He actually gets in his car, drives from upstate New York to be here for the month. Usually he's working from home doing content for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and their website and other such things. But he told me that he likes to just listen to old races and podcasts, maybe even this version of it, even though obviously he's here now. But he gets in his car for the 11 hours and clears his head and gets ready for the month. And then he is there to facilitate and help out with facts and figures and, and information about the Speedway. So Susie Elliott, Paul Kelly would be my two that I think of behind the scenes. What say you, Mike? I couldn't disagree. I agree with that at all because I think they're both fabulous. And, and I, I've known Paul for a long time. And, and one thing I think people need to know about Paul especially is – he works really, really closely with um, Donald on, unfortunately, when we have an obituary to do, when someone passes away, um, you know, he'll, even though Donald's retired, he'll, he'll ask Donald maybe a quick question about someone who's passed away. And, and, and Paul Kelly writes a lot of those obituaries. And, and it's very, very important to Paul, as it was to Donald, that everyone who wrote, uh, drove in the Indianapolis 500 if you if you drove even once you get an obituary on the website uh, so it's very important to those guys and so paul's done a fabulous job with that and he's he does an amazing job writing those and so and susie's great i mean i worked with a, susie on a number of projects um in my previous career and so yeah i i couldn't I couldn't disagree with those two choices at all. I think they're both fabulous. And there's a lot of folks over there that are, are really good people. I mean, I'm, I got to know some people in credentials and, 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 you know, it's sometimes, as you said, it's a, it's a thankless job, right? Because, uh, you know, there's always a last minute request. There's always somebody who needs an extra pass or somebody who needs a parking pass or things like that. So it's, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it that we don't, you don't really see and that's why i really kind of wanted to shine a light on some people today you know there's another gentleman by the name of scott richards that works in the uh, ticket office now who comes up with a lot of statistics and distributes them for those of us that work uh, on the broadcast or in public address and the stats that he comes up with and the figures that he the numbers that he crunches truly remarkable so there are a lot of people like uh these men and women and we're going to talk about some of them tonight and the stories are going to be told not necessarily by mike thompson and myself here on beyond the bricks but rather by a former driver talking about midget car racer and of course veteran of the indianapolis motor speedway freddie agabation who was born in 1913 in modesto california ran in a number of different series before coming to Indianapolis and qualifying for his first race in 1947. He made 11 Indianapolis 500s. He had a best finish of fourth in 1953. 
But then Mike, Freddie Agabashian, and, and not to take anything away from his racing career by any stretch of the imagination, he's in the National Midget Auto Racing Hall of Fame. Uh, he's in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Hall of Fame. But he also paid his contribution to the sport, not just behind the wheel, but rather with a microphone. And he, I'm not going to say reinvented, but he extended his career, if you will, as a broadcaster, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Freddie, I think probably a lot of people know Freddie more from his broadcasting, you know, as a uh, the driver analyst with Sid on the Indy 500 radio network. And, the, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people know him from that. And yeah, he was very, very well known for that. He was he worked with Champion Sparkplug and he was basically kind of loaned to the Speedway Radio Network as the driver analyst. And in fact, when Champion stopped their support of the Speedway Radio Network for a time, he actually had to stop because Autolite stepped in. And since it was a competitor, you know, Freddie could no longer appear on the broadcast. So they had to get someone else. And that's when Len Sutton stepped in because because Freddie could no longer appear because it was no longer sponsored by Champion. It was now Autolite and it was a direct competitor. So that's the reason why Freddie stepped away for a little while. But but Freddie was, I, I think I told the story last year. I mean, how he broke my sunglasses when I was basically, a, you know, a teenager at Indy. And that was one of the highlights of my life just because it was Freddie Agabation talking to me, you know. So he was a great guy and. Uh, very well known for his radio work. And in that capacity, what we are going to hear is, I assume, 1961. Is that correct when he had, oh, I'm not going to say fireside chats, but essentially that in the fact that Freddie Agabashian kind of tried to spotlight different people throughout the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And Mike, tonight we have the thrill of being able to kind of bring that back to life, right? That's correct. What happened was Freddie in 1961, as part of the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Speedway, as again, he was working for Champion Sparkplug at the time, he did a thing called the Golden Almanac. And the idea behind it was to do, you know, 10 or 12 of these kind of vignettes. And they almost were exactly what you said. They were like fireside chats at the time where he would spotlight somebody. And what's interesting about these particular you know, quote unquote, fireside chefs. He didn't really talk to drivers. He talked to mostly people who were behind the scenes. I mean, he talked to Joe Quinn, the safety director, and then he talked, he actually talked to Sid and he jokingly says, you know, I'm interviewing you for a change instead of you talking to me, you know? And, and so he picked a lot of people behind the scenes to talk to instead of interviewing drivers, which I thought was actually kind of an interesting take um, for, for the time. So as opposed to Mike and I talking about each of these individuals, we're going to allow the chairman emeritus of the, or excuse me, the historian emeritus of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Donald Davidson, to share with us a little background of who we hear Freddie Agabashian talking to, beginning with Al Blumker, who was the Speedway Public Relations Director, but also notably known, as Donald will share here, for writing the book 500 Miles to Go, among others. Here we go. Okay, actually, he wrote a second one that he didn't get credit for, and that's Gentlemen, Start Your Engines by Wilbur Shaw. There's actually, uh, th that was pretty much written by Al Blemker, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you the story about that in just a few moments. But anyway, he was from Indianapolis, and he actually worked for the Indianapolis Star when he was a young man. And uh, during the war, he formed a PR firm right downtown, 
and it was right around the time that the change of the the, uh, the sale of the track was taking place with uh, Tony Holman purchasing it and it being a, a locally owned Rickard Backer had, had uh, sold out and Wilbershaw was installed as the the general manager and the the Rickenbacker uh, original group of uh, publicists actually had been a guy named Steve Hannigan, who, and I'm probably going back a little bit, but maybe we need to pick up on all of these things. Is, uh, Steve Hannigan was from Lafayette, went to Lafayette Jeff, and came to the track, I think, like in about 1921, and ended up being one of the most famous publicists in the, in, uh, the United States. And when he left to go on to other things, he had a protege named Joe Cox. Well, after the war, because the uh, cops went uh, through the remainder of the Rickenbacker years, when they came back after the war, the thinking was that Joe Cops would once again do it. But they decided that with the sale to uh, to Tony Holman with Wilbershaw, that while Joe Cops was offered the job, they, he decided to, to not take it. So they went to Al Blemker, and I suppose that Wilbershaw would have known him uh, because of Al's years at the Indianapolis Star. And so he was hired as the publicity man through the PR firm. Well, I think that that did not last for a, for any more than a few months before Al closed up the PR firm and then uh, became full-time publicist for the track. And so then that continued on for the next, uh, golly, on into the... Um, he was there on until the 80s, and I don't, I can't say what the last year would be, but probably mid-80s, and for all of those years, he wrote all the press releases, and also, uh, for, a, a, for a few years at least, he did the, the uh, publicity for the Hoosier 100, under the days of, under uh, when Joe Quinn from Terre Haute was on the fair board and was the promoter of title uh, for all of the races at the fairgrounds, Hoosier 100, and uh, so on and so forth. Al Blemker wrote the press releases. So now that we know a little more about Al, here is his chat with Freddie Agabashian from 1961. And we have with us the director of publicity, Al Blemker, who, by the way, is one single individual is more responsible for all the publicity at Indianapolis Motor Speedway than anyone else. Al, would like to ask you a couple of questions, if we may. Uh, you have had a lot to do with the growth of the uh, public interest as far as the 500 is concerned. Uh, do you think that this 50th anniversary will create extra interest? I'm sure it already has, Fred. Our ticket sales are way ahead of any previous year, and there's a great deal of interest in the ceremonies that we'll have on race day involving some of the old cars. Uh, by the way, I'm reading your uh, new book, 500 Miles to Go. That's terrific. How long did it take you to write it? Well, the writing job wasn't so bad, Freddie. I wrote it in about 11 months, but I spent six years of research before I wrote that first word. Well, I'll bet the researching must have been uh, a terrific and unusual and interesting job. It was. I found out a lot of things I never even suspected about this place. <laughs> I'll bet you did. Al, by the way, what would you say was the uh, most unusual uh, thing that's happened at the 500? Well, the most unusual thing happened even before the 500, Freddie. Back in 1910, on July the 4th, Carl Fisher had a five-mile race out here between an airplane and what he called a wind machine, which actually was an overland race car that was powered by a propeller mounted on the rear. There was no drive shaft. It was just like a wingless airplane. Well, I wasn't aware of that, Al. Thank you, Al Blemker, Director of Publicity of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Now, Mike... 
I'm not going to say that that sound bite is dated, but it might be dated based on the fact that that's what he thinks is the weirdest thing that's ever happened at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. That's the case. But it, it's fun that they talk a little bit about 500 Miles to Go, which was one of the first books I ever read about the Indianapolis 500. And if you've ever read 500 Miles to Go, it, it's it's a fun read because you have to kind of suspend belief a little bit at the beginning because there's all these made up quotes at the beginning where you know it's like all these quotes from carl fisher that you know there's no possible way they could have actually gotten you know but there's if you suspend the belief a little bit at the beginning it's really actually a very fun read it is also a book that is kind of become a collector's item i mean i don't know how difficult it is to find you would know this mike upcoming we have you know the memorabilia show you do a lot of those kinds of things are there still copies that float around or do people kind of hold on to the copies they have of 500 miles to go no you can find copies of that actually and what's interesting is 500 miles to go as well as the other book that al blemker wrote as donald mentioned because he, he didn't get credit for writing that wilbur shaw got credit but actually blemker wrote it um gentlemen start your engines those books you'll find actually a lot of those signed by drivers what happened was when the gentlemen start your engines came out in 1955 and when 500 miles to go came out in 1961 people who had pit passes would walk around and get a lot of drivers to sign those so i've i've actually in my collection have two or three copies of uh these both of those books where like 20 or 30 drivers have signed that so that was actually a really popular thing to do in 55 and 61 is to get those particular books signed but but to answer your question yes you, you know at the memorabilia show you'll see you'll see copies of 500 miles to go original it came out in 61 and then in for the second golden anniversary the 50th running in 66 they put out a second edition of that book many people feel myself included when they walk onto the grounds of the indianapolis motor speedway that they are on the most hallowed ground certainly in auto racing for me probably within the city itself whenever you have that kind of land that means that much to so many people somebody's got to be in charge of it that gentleman's name for many years was clarence cagle here is donald davidson with more on his story his role in the uh, making the speedway what it is is uh, is pretty major. Uh, he was the superintendent of the grounds when he first got that position. I think it was um, I think it was forty eight or forty nine. Uh, he was a Pullman and Company employee. And there was a fellow named Jack Fortner was the superintendent of the grounds, and I think he passed away at around that time, and that's when Clarence then was was uh, it. It could have been as late as '51, but certainly by '51, uh, Clarence was the superintendent of the grounds, and for many years, of course, we only had one race a year, and in fact, the officers until 1956 were downtown on North Capitol, and they didn't do anything at the track other than the tire test. But there was no museum, and there there was no uh, bus rides around the track or anything like that. And Clarence sort of uh, pretty much had the grounds. And uh, so he kept the place in tip-top shape. And one of their uh, – he took great pride in getting the track cleaned up as quickly as possible. And the people used to leave a lot of trash, way more than they do now. And within a day or two, he'd have it all cleaned up. And then into the mid-'50s, more and more of the teams would use their – they'd use the garage area for their headquarters for the championship season. I don't think that that generally was known, but you could go over 
there anytime during the summer on a Tuesday or Wednesday, and, and all of the, the top people in championship racing would be in the garage area. Well, all of that came under Clarence, and uh, he had to put up with a lot of practical jokes and, and things of that nature. And the 1956 was, um, they called that the year of Cagle's Miracle because there was a heavy rainstorms in the days leading up to the race, and the track got flooded. I mean, it rained so hard, and the creeks uh, broke their banks, and, and uh, you, you, you didn't have the... Um, uh, the, the system that you have now where uh, the, the, a number of channels are being cut to prevent a flood. Well, in those days, I mean, the streets around Speedway would flood down at the corner of 16th and Cunningham. And uh, so the, the creek through turn one would break its banks and the water would come up onto the track and down into the tunnels and everything. And in 1956, a day or two before the race, it looked like the, you couldn't have the race. And he had the pumps out there. And uh, I I don't think he went to bed for like three days and on race morning it was amazing people were coming to the track uh, under overcast skies and they were just pumping out the final few uh, pints of of, uh, of water and that was known as the year of, of Cagle's miracle uh, he also did a lot of work around the town of Speedway and then he started becoming involved with other tracks Tony Holman would loan him out so when Michigan was being built and even Daytona and uh, I've for several winters, um, he he would help the France family, and a couple of times I went to the Daytona 500, and we would leave a little early. We tried to beat the the rush, so we'd leave at like the 400 mile mark by road, and we'd come out. and uh, Here's Clarence Cagle directing the traffic, so he just was an amazing man. Here is 1961. That man, Clarence Cagle, again interviewed by Freddie Agabashian. This is Freddie Agabation speaking to you from the office of Clarence Cagle, superintendent of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Clarence, I don't think anyone can celebrate the golden anniversary of the Speedway with any greater pride than you. For, for the record, uh, how long have you served as superintendent of this tremendous racing plant? Fourteen years, Freddie. Well, in those 14 years, what would you say would be the biggest job you ever tackled? Running the Speedway. Well, that is a job in itself, believe me. How many people are employed at the Speedway during racing season or the month of May, Clarence? 3,500. In other words, comparable to running a city of 50 to 75,000 people. That is true, except the city would probably be easier to run because you don't have to do it all in 30 days. How true. What improvements have been made at the track this year? We have put in a new safety fence on the back side of the track, which now makes it all the way around for protection of the spectators plus of the race driver. We've also put in new cement retaining wall on the back stretch and a new paddock grandstand. Well, besides uh, tremendous uh, advantageous improvements for the uh, customers, the Speedway has always had in mind the safety not only of the customers but of the race people themselves, and I think that's very credible. Looking into your crystal ball, by the way, what do you see as developments on the Speedway property in the future? More grandstands and a new clubhouse, nine more holes of golf, which will make us a 27-hole golf course, possibly a swimming pool over here, uh, also more 
and better roads to facilitate getting people in and out of here. Well, that's wonderful. By the way, we've watched cleanup preparations in the stands and infield after each race every year, and it's a tremendous project. I've often wondered just how, many, how much paper you manage to collect, Clarence. Well, Freddie, to give you an illustration, we have a grandstand that's 100 feet wide and 750 feet long. We'll get 20 dump trucks. We have 10 grandstands, so that'll give you one idea of the grandstand infield. Uh, we have been in the past using about 40 men to clean it, which takes 30 days to clean it up. And besides all the paper, you have another problem. All the bottles and other stuff. To <laughs> that stick is to the so true. <laughs> <laughs> There's another cleanup problem that is really important, and that's cleaning the track. We spend an average of eight hours per day cleaning this track in order to make sure that it's real safe for the boys when they go out. Of any parts? that might be on the track, such as nails and engine parts and such. By the way, I want to thank you very kindly, Clarence Cagle, superintendent of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Thank you, Freddie. Mike, whatever happened to that pool? Do we know? I don't, know. I wish I mean, I'd it'd be nice to go and take that. a couple of laps, maybe do a couple cannonballs during a caution flag, something like that, right? Yeah. The golf course. I like course. that. Well, it, that was, uh, I think that was part of the uh, proposed amusement park, maybe, that didn't actually end up happening. Say, we point. know that uh, the golf course certainly came to fruition. So, too, from the early visions that a road course, but a swimming pool seemed to have escaped us. What did not escape us is more sound from Freddie Agabashian talking to those who worked kind of behind the scenes of yesteryear at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We'll continue listening in when we return to Beyond the Bricks. Welcome back, Jake Query, Mike Thompson. This is Beyond the Bricks here on 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. Thank you for joining us tonight. We're taking a look at some of the names, the heroes of yesteryear that were a little bit behind the scenes. Chiki Hiroshima would be one of those, although I don't know how much you would say he was behind the scenes in his era. For example, he sat on the pole with Rex Mays in 1935 and 1936. He rode with Jimmy Snyder to new records. Now, you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, Jake, what do you mean he rode with? Well, he was a riding mechanic. He was somebody who was very active around auto racing and, as well, the automobile. He was an engineer for Champion Spark Plug. He was a field representative for Autolike Spark Plugs. He was one of those who became a face around the Speedway and was very well known in his era. And perhaps it's our responsibility tonight to keep that knowledge of him alive but it certainly would be a futile attempt by me to be able to do so with the level of knowledge of donald davidson so we will again before we hear from freddie agabashian's chat with chicky here's more from donald davidson on who we're going to hear from uh he came on the scene very young and uh, was at the track in 1935, I believe was the first time, and he was with Rex Mays, and he was Rex Mays' riding mechanic. And he made an ideal riding mechanic because he was light. And honestly, you know, they're trying to save weight, and, and he was a tiny little fellow. So anyway, he was on the pole, 
Takio was his name, Takio Hiroshima, but he went by Chicky from very early on. And uh, so anyway, he was on the pole with Rex Mays in 35 and 36. And then in 37, he rode with Jimmy Snyder, who did not win the pole, but he was the fastest qualifier. So the first three years that Chicky rode, uh, he was he was in the car that was the fastest qualifier, twice on the pole and once not. Did the riding mechanics ride with him as they qualified? Oh, yes. Did they? Okay. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, anyway, 37, that was the last year for the riding mechanics. So then he was pit side and, and uh, continued with, uh, he'd been with our sparks all that time and uh so they were on the pole with jimmy snyder and got second in in 39 and then uh, um then uh, third with ted horn in 41 and then in 46 he was on the winning team he was not listed as the chief mechanic but he was on the winning team with george robson and then he was with al miller and the rear engine miller in 47 uh 50 he was with uh, cecil green got fourth and the uh, race was stopped because of rain and then um uh in in um uh, th- then he b- became part of AJ. Well, I, he had Walt Faulkner with the auto shipper special in '53. Anyway, in '60. Um, I'll see if I can uh, set another record straight here, or at least offer an opinion. Um, Smokey Eunuch um, said some very unkind things about Jim Rathman in his memoirs and uh, claimed that he was the chief mechanic in 1960, and he was not. And uh, he, at some point, he came to the track uh, prior to, the, to me being over there and tried to get them to change the uh, the records because it showed Chicky Hiroshima as the as the chief mechanic, and he was the winning chief mechanic. And uh, Chicky and Jim Rathman went out to pick the, up the car in March. Uh, Rathman told me that Chicky was the only guy to work on it until they came to the track. They did bring Smokey Eunuch in to supervise the pits, and uh, so Chicky actually was not an over-the-wall guy on race day. Uh, Smokey Eunuch headed up that that uh, that team, that's for sure. But Chicky was the chief mechanic. His name was painted on the side of the car, and on the day after the race, uh, their shots were taken with Jim Rathman with Chicky Hiroshima. So now we know more about the man who was inducted in 1998 into the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum Hall of Fame, who, by the way, in every photograph had a very radiant smile. And here is Chiki Hiroshima with Freddie Agabation in 1961. This is Fred Agabation speaking to you from the garages of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We're in the garage of the Leader Card 500 Roadster that has a new mechanic on it, worked on it since its inception, and the mechanic we're to talk to is Chick Hiroshima, who was the mechanic on the car that won the 1960 Indianapolis 500-mile race with Jim Rathman at the wheel. And Chicky this year has a brand-new car built from the ground up and is chief mechanic on the car that Johnny Boyd is driving. Chicky, your car looks real lovely. How do you feel about it? Well, thank you, Fred, for the kind words. I'm really flattered, and uh, we're all hep- ready to go. The car looks lovely. It's got new innovations, too, in it. Uh, a few, yes, it's uh, suspension-wise. Yes, and it has a little assister in there for the driver, too, has it? <laughs> <laughs> or is that a complete secret? No, I wouldn't say so. Uh, it, it's available to anybody. 
Well, Jake, uh, you boys have done an excellent job on the automobile, and I know uh, Johnny will get everything out of it that's in there, and you'll put everything in your background and experience into it because your experience goes back quite a bit. Not only are you a good mechanic and a good engine man, you used to be riding mechanic for one of the best drivers in the country as well. Who was that? Uh, that's Rex Mays, but uh, I'd rather not talk about that because that goes back a few years. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, along with that, as far as experience is concerned, uh, for the people that might not know it, you were on final assembly for Meyer and Drake. When these engines came off the line, you were the one that tore them down, assembled them, and checked them out, correct? That goes back to, yes, I spent 10 years with Meyer and Drake. And uh, prior to that, you were with the engines all the time as well. That's with the Thorn Engineering Corporation back from 37 on to 47, except for the war years. And that's when they were designing those six-cylinder supercharged, supercharged engines. 183 uh, engines, yes. You and Art Sparks. That's right. And Eddie Offit. That's right. Well, getting back to your machine, by the way, uh, uh, besides those two new innovations we have, what else uh, do you think that you've added to it in contributing to possibly winning this year's race? Well, we haven't exactly added. We've taken off, uh, weight-wise, that is. We tried to build it as light as we could. We feel that uh, the lighter the car, the better it's going to be, as much as... Uh, we, we wanted to get the horsepower per weight ratio up as high as we can. I mean, more horsepower and less weight. Well, now, talking about ratios, I noticed you've trimmed down weight tremendously in the automobile, adding much to its appearance as well as in its ruggedness. Uh, how much would you say the car would weigh now? It's total? hard to say. We all got to pool up, but uh, it's my guess it weighs anywhere from 100 to 150 pounds less than last year's car, which weighed around 1650 or 1660 pounds. It ought to weigh about 1550, 1580. Somewhere around there, yes. That's you dry, know, of course. Dry, dry, of course, yes. It's the only way you can weigh that. Water, oil, and fuel. That's right. Thank you, Chiki Hiroshima, chief mechanic on the Leader Card 500 Roadster. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chick. Mike, your your audio library, Mike, is pretty fascinating. Uh, but this is as you've pulled some gems tonight because it to me it really is thrilling to hear from these guys that probably got their due. Obviously, in Chicky's case, I mean he's inducted into the Museum Hall of Fame. But I hope that there are some that are listening that say, you know what, I didn't know much about him or know much about Al Blemker, and and just to be able to illuminate who these guys were, I think is pretty cool. Again, the opportunity to shed some light on someone like Chicky, who you know, I mean, obviously he's not as famous as a Rick Mears or someone that we talk about a lot, but. But, you know, I mean, I'm fascinated by Chicky because there's a famous photograph that they sell at the Speedway Photoshop, and it's and it's him and Rex Mays when he was a riding mechanic with Rex. And Rex Mays is wearing this, like, cereal bowl-type helmet, and, you know, Chicky's sitting next to him with a big smile on his face. And it's just – I've always been just fascinated by that particular photo and, and that riding mechanic era. Th these guys who were riding mechanics, I wish I would have got to talk to a lot of them just about, you know, here they are just riding in a seat, you know, and they're they're along for the ride, literally. So I wish I would have got to talk to a lot of those guys. There are those that ran in the Indianapolis 500 in the early years that later came back – and became executives, if you will, chief stewards of the race itself and oversaw things. That includes our next subject tonight. His name is Harlan Fangler. He was born in 1903 in Chicago, Illinois. Here's more on Harlan from Donald Davidson. 
They called him the Wonder Boy of the board tracks. In fact, when you said Atlantic City, I thought you were going to ask about the board track that was there. But I, and Harlan Fengler probably drove at that one. I'm not sure, but he did have success on board tracks like Beverly Hills, and uh, he was very young. They called him the Wonder Boy, as I say. And it, he, uh, uh, in 1922, he was a riding mechanic for Harry Hart. So that shows uh, how far back they went. When Harry Hart's finished second in the 1922-500, Harlan Fengler was the riding mechanic. And I think he was, I don't think he was 21 years old yet. Uh, in fact, he might have been 19. And then in 1923, he was part of Cliff Durant's team of Millers in the 500, and as you say, that uh, he, he was a one-time starter. He didn't finish that one. In 24, he was there with a the car, uh, the Wade Special, a uh, Miller, but he got that one upside down, and he was also entered in 26, but I don't think he drove. But uh, he was an engineer, and apparently he had something to do with a company called Craigar, and whether he founded that or he owned it at one time, but uh, he he never married. He knew uh, several film stars and famously uh, Loretta Young. He knew Loretta Young when she was like about 12 or 13 years old and her older sister and used to go and have tea with the mother and uh, the two daughters. And in fact, he and Loretta Young actually kept in contact, uh, you know, all the way through and until, you know, around the time that he passed away. Uh, he lived in Dayton for quite a while. Well, actually, New Lebanon, which is just outside of Dayton, and he worked for Ford Motor Company and uh, as an engineer. And I think, but it was Ford Motor Company, but with an aircraft involvement, but I'm a little hazy on that. Uh, he was the promoter at the Dayton Speedway for a short time and uh, had become an official at the Speedway in probably, and I'm going to have to guess that it's probably 49.50. He was a referee. And then when Harry McQuinn, who was the chief steward from 53 to 57, uh, was... Um he, he uh, actually stepped down under pressure, and, and uh, I'm not really quite sure what that was all about, but he did step down, and in 1958, then Harlan Fengler was named the chief steward to succeed Harry McQuinn, and then Fengler was the chief steward all the way until 1973. And uh, he died, uh, oh golly, I don't remember exactly what year now, but it was probably around 79, 80. It wasn't too long after he'd uh, given up the chief stewardship. He actually passed away in March 26th of 1981 in New Lebanon, Ohio. But shortly after Harlan Fangler became the chief steward of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, as opposed to hearing from him with Freddie Agabashian, there is never a bad time to hear from the public address voice, Tom Carnegie of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Here is Tom Carnegie with Fangler shortly after Fangler became the chief steward of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. This is Tom Carnegie at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, where the 43rd annual 500-mile race will be run on Saturday, May the 30th. With us at the microphone today is Harlan Fengler, chief steward of the event, who heads the staff of officials for the United States Auto Club. Harlan Fengler, what is your chief responsibility in connection with the running of the race? Well, primarily, Tom, uh, our aim is to make this race really safe uh, for the spectators as well as the participants. And uh, you know this race is run according to the rules of the United States Automobile Club as well as the supplementary rules contained in the entry blank. 
Have you made any changes in your staff since last year's big event? Well, most of the key people will be back. Uh, one uh, position has been changed, and George Connor has been appointed chief observer. You know he's a former 500-mile driver, and uh, he's participated in 14 of the Indianapolis Classics before retiring a few years ago. I remember one time he went the wrong way down that he straightaway. Did, <laughs> he did a real good job of doing it backwards. Yes. Are you doing anything new or different this year to make the race safer? Well, this might be interesting to you. We've asked the Federal Communications Commission for permission to operate a two-way shortwave radio linking the officials at the starting line with the pace car and the director of timing and scoring. Uh, General Electric's equipment will be used on this, and uh, this should be a real help to us and at the start. Uh, it certainly should. Now, are you uh, One thing I might tell yeah. you, Tom, is that I've, in another race that I've run this year, I've used uh, radio communication, and it was real uh, helpful and real wonderful. Are you uh, personally happy with the Speedway's decision to use the old-style start? Well, my position on this is that this is the Speedway's prerogative. They can decide how they want to start this race and line up the cars for the start. I have no objection to it, and I'm as happy as they are about it. Uh, what can you tell us right now about some of the new 18 cars built for this year's big race? Well, just about all of the ideas that these engineers and designers can come up with will be seen in these new automobiles. Uh, a lot of experimental work is going on in an effort to get the best weight distribution, uh, to get good handling. And as you know, there's as much of a contest in building these machines as there is actually in the race. Thank you very much, Arlen Fengler. And remember, fans, if you want to see the world's greatest sports spectacle, be on hand at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the 43rd annual 500-mile race on May the 30th. Interesting, Mike, because one would assume, based on the way that Tom Carnegie tagged that, to use a radio term, that there were still tickets for sale in 1959. Of course, we, we don't know whether or not people jumped at the last opportunity to get out and watch it, but if they did, they would have watched Roger Ward win that race that year. Yeah, those were um, a lot of those Tom Carnegie and Sid Collins bits were they were put out by the Speedway and, and sent to radio stations like WIBC. Those appeared on WIBC as a, you know, at last minute, hey, come to the race. It's, you're going to see something you've never seen before type thing. But uh, Harlan Fengler, by the way, if you ever see pictures of a, of a man in the late 50s, early 60s, all the way to 73, as Donald mentioned, wearing kind of a jaunty red hat standing down there, that's Harlan Fangler. That was his trademark. He would always have this kind of jaunty red hat in all the pictures. We come back, we will put a bow tie on it, and we might even make it red to match the jaunty hat we're wearing. It's Beyond the Bricks here on 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. It's a day tense with suspense, still more to come. Now, fans, stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing. Ed Sullivan has a word for you. Okay, Ed? Perhaps you saw the film on our show, taken at the annual Indianapolis 500 banquet, when I asked Tony Hoffman, president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, why he had picked our Mercury as the pace car for the tremendous Memorial Day race. Well, Ed, that honor always goes to the car that, in our opinion, shows the year's biggest advance in styling and performance. And in your opinion, then, the Big M satisfies both counts. Yes, it does. Easily. Jack Reith and his gang out at Mercury have done a bang-up job. The 57 Big M is several years ahead in styling. All in all, Ed, the Big M is the car of the year. That's what the Indianapolis Motor Speedway president said then. And that's the sort of thing I hear about Mercury wherever I go. Car of the year. 
most advanced. And find out for yourself. See your Mercury dealer and the 57 Big M with dream car design. Sid Collins, Ed Sullivan, Tony Holman, all the big stars there, and Mike all sounding so naturally smooth on the radio. That was uh, an interesting spot. I thought you'd like that one particularly. That actually <laughs> ran in the uh, qualifying show on WIBC. That was now, all of that stuff, man, is so cool because I think it pays tribute there as well or just lets people know just how big the innovation of the automobile and the display and stage was for Indianapolis. Mike, a lot of fun. We'll do it again, all right? Sounds good to me. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Bricks.